from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. A time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty alongside my co-host and fellow SBC alum Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bougay and uh, we've got a very uh, jam-packed episode to to bring you today as uh, we're going to be talking about both of the uh, the big time games that occurred on Tuesday night including game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Heat and the Celtics, game 7 between the Clippers and Nuggets. And then at the end of the episode, we're also going to be previewing the Western Conference Finals. And of course, that is Lakers versus Nuggets. But Corbin, let's let's start off with this uh, this Heat-Celtics series. I don't know who, uh, who you necessarily favored heading into the series, but Miami's really strong run in this postseason is continuing. They are now 9-1 in the playoffs uh, with an impressive 117-114 win over the Celtics in overtime with a spectacular highlight block to finish it by Bam Adebayo rejecting the driving Jason Tatum. That was insane. I mean, that was at a turning point in the game, but the fact that he was able to do that with, I mean, a right-handed player, I saw some Twitter with his left hand with such force. I mean, and you can see replays. Jason Tatum driving right past Jimmy Butler, you know, getting that acceleration, going up strong. It wasn't a weak dunk attempt. And Bam out of bio just clearly turning that away. Now, I mean, there's a lot of people going, this is one of the biggest blocks, you know, in ever in playoff history, all, all that all that craziness, which, I mean, come on, there was a big one, you know, not just four years ago. But that being said, this was, um, that was insane. I mean, this has to be the biggest moment of Adebayo's career, easily. Right. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty standard, you know, help rotation. You know, Tatum, Tatum got going from from just inside the three point line, and, and it seemed like he was destined to to try and finish at the rim. So, you know, it's it's not that impressive just in terms of Bam being there, but it is impressive just in terms of like how it actually ended up happening and the. The flexibility, the dexterity of his wrist—it was—it seemed like it bent back so far that I was afraid he was going to be injured on the play. And you know, they—they they actually, I saw a screenshot where it showed uh, his wrist, you know, still bent like almost at a ninety-degree angle, and the ball is over the rim, and he's still preventing, uh, preventing the Tatum from being able to push it into the basket. Uh, really impressive, but but yes, as you uh, as you rightfully mentioned, there's uh, a play that's called the block for a reason. <laughs> exactly. Don't you forget it. Like let's go. I get, I get the moment and the excitement that comes with that. But but let's not. You know, like you said, it was a standard defensive play. It was a great defensive play. Great use of athleticism. 
job there. It looked impressive. Replays will not do it justice looking back. It's even more impressive. But as you said, it's it's it, let's 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 calm down. It's not it's not it's not this big thing here. Yeah. So I, I kind of uh, you know had some had some notes about the the matchup for uh, for this game that I wanted to to talk about and. Of course, uh, speaking to, you know, there was there's question marks. You know, in the regular season, the Heat actually weren't that great of a defensive team, but they've gotten a lot better in the bubble. You know, with with putting Bam at the five, allowing them to switch more of the actions, and uh, you know, not having as many weak defenders out there on the floor. And I thought their defense looked really solid in the first half. It was a lot of just the Celtics making really difficult shots. I mean, Marcus Smart hit, uh, I believe it was six threes. So again, the fact that the Heat win this game despite Marcus Smart going crazy from downtown is another positive sign for Miami. But, uh, you know, the they, they switched well. They made things difficult on Kemba Walker. They at times blitzed him. They showed him some different looks, kept him off balance in a lot of the same ways that Toronto was able to. And, you know, they... Uh, they were also able to to show some zone. Of course, Spolstra, an intelligent guy, he had to have watched uh, plenty of that series, uh, that Celtics Raptors series, and seen Nurse and 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 Toronto use that zone defense. He went to it a lot here, and I thought it was interesting as well. Like when he had Kelly Olynyk in the game, they utilized it in in those moments to make sure he wasn't exploited, and it, it looked reasonably effective. Yeah, I mean, for one, you said the chess match. And, and um, Coach Stevens what was intricate and in that way you mentioned not only taking uh, in particular Kemba Walker out of his game which was a big deal I mean the sideline says he didn't really shoot super great 30, 31% 11% from 3 but like he really was off kilter off rhythm and for someone who potentially was an X factor or not potentially was this game one but definitely is an X factor in this series you know that was a, a shocking game for him I do want to point out to detract to far from your point, but Brad Wanamaker, I thought, you know, for, for a guy who, you know, 24 minutes, 11-3-6, from what I watched, what I heard in general, played a really smart game, and I, I was able to look back a little bit on some of his clips, but like, you know, making smart shots, making decent reads, someone who, you know, he's not going to take Kemba's minutes, <laughs> nor should he, um, and he's not someone who's going to be playing alongside them um, that much, but as someone who really, I think, had one of the better games of, of in the playoffs that I can remember of, of Brad Wanamaker. Yeah, uh, again, you know, watching this game, I, I initially picked Heat and 7 in this series, and, you know, watching this game, it makes me feel more and more confident about Miami because, as you mentioned, guys like Brad Wanamaker, he played well. Marcus Smart shot the ball well. Jason Tatum had a, a pretty excellent ball game. And, and you know, you, you look on the other side, yes, Dragic played reasonably well. Uh, you know, he, he had 29, um, but... You know, you, you got six points from Duncan Robinson. He was in foul trouble throughout the game. He didn't really give them anything. Tyler Hero had some, some nice moments, um, you know, towards the end, but he had just 12. Um, Bam Adebayo, you know, he, he had a good all-around game, as he tends to do, but he wasn't really that impactful. Uh, you know, he, he missed a couple of bunnies in this ball game. It didn't seem like, to me, anybody on the Heat really outshined what I would have expected from them and uh you know again speaking to Dragic he he looked a lot more comfortable attacking the Celtics bigs than like the likes of Lowry and Van Fleet did in that 
in that previous series, those guys seem to really have a hard time getting around the likes of Tice and Williams, whereas Dragic, uh, he, he seems to have a little bit of an extra gear right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dragic, this whole postseason, it, it really seems like the dude went to the fountain of youth. And, and in general, because he hasn't phased you out, but this Boston defense, as you mentioned, with guards before in, in both rounds, you mentioned Lowry and others, were, were, was stifling. It really was getting him out of their comfort zone. And while Dragic didn't like drop 40, he didn't seem to be um, phased. In fact, I'm going to share a funny moment, I guess. I was listening to, I listened to both broadcasts um, of, of the Radio 1 and the, um, of, of the, not the Radio of the Boston um, side and the Miami side. And what I loved on the Boston side was that one of them was like, for a, a thin little a point guard body, this guy is really strong. And I was just like, <laughs> like his penetrating and his strength of the basket, you're right. He he he's being able to manipulate in such a way. I mean, it helps that his his shot is really going down, um, particularly from three. Not that he's a bad shooter, but just someone who you know he can kind of have a, a, a good shooting and not such at nights. But he's been consistent from out there, and he has a level of craft and finishing at the rim, you know, and, and timing despite a tough Boston defense that had really, like you said, made it harder for other guards in the past. Yeah, I guess I. I... I, um, I should have mentioned that, uh, you know, for as far as not too many players on the Heat really played better than I would have expected, I guess Crowder going for 22 and continuing to shoot the lights out, that would be uh, a little bit unexpected. It's it's funny, we've got uh, guys on both teams that are in, in Marcus Smart for the Celtics and Crowder for the Heat, uh, guys that are notoriously kind of poor outside shooters that are just absolutely lighting it up from uh, from downtown in these playoffs. But uh, one thing, you know, the, the one stretch in this ball game that I thought Miami really struggled and actually helped Boston get out to a double-digit lead uh, heading into the fourth quarter was they, they took Dragic out of the game about halfway through the third quarter. They played that lineup where they've got, I believe it was Jimmy Butler, Olenek, uh, Kendrick Nunn, Tyler Hero, and Andre Iguodala. And frankly, those, uh, those lineups... Uh, that, that come in kind of near the end of the uh, first and, and third quarters, those lineups just did not score well for Miami. And frankly, if Kendrick Nunn is not uh, is not shooting the ball well in this series, I think Spolster needs to look at potentially throwing out Jones Jr. instead because, you know, if, if you're not going to get offensive production from Nunn, you might as well get that extra athleticism and defense that, that Jones Jr. provides. And exactly, especially when you have guys uh, conceivably, you know, in Andre Godala or others who can do some ball handling in a pinch. Um, and, the, and, the, and with that, it completely negates anything that Kendrick Nunn could bring to the table if he's not being effective. And, and you know, minus 10 tonight in 13 minutes, it, it wasn't great for him. And uh, judging by the takes on Twitter, he was just making some dumb decisions as well. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It would make sense to at least have some more defensive, if not uh, – actual acumen out there, but some more potential to be more of a of a disruptor, more of a force on that end. And 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 use one of the guys up there who can bring the ball and initiate some playmaking and basically conceding that hey our offense is gonna be super great at these end of the quarter runs, but we're gonna be tight defensively, we're gonna hold a lead or we're gonna keep it from getting too big and just buy some time for our stars to get back in the game. With Kendrick Nunn right now, you can't really rely on him on either end. Um it's glad that apparently he's played himself back into you know, Miami Heat shape, but his play has not been effective. And so with that, I, I agree completely. Just take him out, you know, and just concede that, hey, we're not going to have that potential there, but we're going to show up um, even more defensively and maybe Derek Jones Jr. can make an impact, make 
Well, yeah, and, I, and, I, and you know, yes, Derek Jones Jr., not uh, not known as as good of a shooter as none. You certainly lose some some spacing in that respect. But at the same time, Jones Jr. does provide, uh, you know, what I think Steve Kerr labeled as vertical spacing. You know, that uh, with him as the role man with Olenek spacing at the five, I think that's a pretty good combo, and it's worked well for the Heat at times in the bubble. So, uh, you know, and, and also, again, his athleticism, maybe he can snag an offensive rebound or two, get a putback, uh, just, you know, manufacture some offense. And, and right, Jones Jr., obviously, with him out there, their their defense is, is much better. But, uh, yeah, you know, Miami, I thought they looked really good. The zone looked good. The the showing Kemba different different things with, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if the Celtics ran a pick and roll against Bam, they would just switch. Uh, against anybody else, they would blitz, and then they would also show Kemba some of that zone. So uh, they never let him get into a rhythm. And this this Heat offensive system with their passing, you know, Bam Adebayo, I think, had uh, nearly uh, double-digit assists in this game. He was able to facilitate from the elbows. Their offensive system continued to create looks for them. And, you know, again, speaking to what the Celtics just got out of facing the Raptors, where Toronto could not get anything easy... Uh, Miami is able with their offensive system, similar to, you know, what the the Warriors were able to do during their run with their constant movement and uh, playing with a a big passer. They're they're creating offense, you know, and getting some easy looks. Exactly. And, I mean, Coach Bolster mentioned this before, but it's about you know teams being flexible, having that versatility. And Miami is one of the best at that right now. And you said it, getting playmaking through different guys is not really a conventional way. Uh, per se, but it's the same type of attributes needed to win a basketball game coming from guys, you know, where needed. You mentioned Bam being big on the pass game, obviously having multiple playmakers, you know, with Dragic, with Jimmy Butler, um, even with Duncan Robinson not having a good game, the elements are there, and although I feel like Boston had their way throughout, Miami was tight and stayed, and I actually, for the record, you said Miami in seven, I think I did Boston in the same um, amount. I have to look back on my predictions here to make sure, but I had to make some fly. I didn't think that Miami would get this far. But the point being, as Boston, I mean, they had several double-digit leads throughout the game, and Miami came right back and ultimately took control. And it just comes down to, like you said, having uh, not only acumen, but but adapting on the fly and being able to be versatile and, and, and um, diverse in your offensive and defensive arsenal that can give you enough of an edge. And I think, you know, this is Miami striking first blow. You know, it's going to be a tit-for-tat match. I'm excited to see what after I'm going to first excited to rewatch all of this game one, but also to see where Coach Stevens can make adjustments, you know, and when Gordon Hayward comes back, that will obviously be a whole other element added to Boston. But to kind of counteract some actions and some moves that Miami made this game, but this is going to be one of those very much in my mind like um, Boston versus Toronto where it's a game of adjustments, a series of reactions, and we'll kind of see how the chess pieces move. Yeah, um, you know, speaking to kind of uh, the late game situation, the clutch play of these two teams, frankly, the the way the Heat have played in the clutch, the way Jimmy Butler and, and surprisingly the way Tyler Hero has played in the closing moments of games in that Milwaukee series and then also in this game, those guys are playing at their, you know, they are confident. They are guys that want the ball in the closing moments, and and they are going to to make plays for their team. And uh, you know, frankly, I think I trust those guys a little bit more at the end of games. 
And, and Butler, I think, has just, you know, throughout his career maybe has been asked to do a little bit too much on certain teams, hasn't had enough uh, talent around him on others. But this team, it seems to be a perfect fit for him. You know, you've got, uh, you've got creators in, in Dragic and Hero and, and even Bam that can, that can help create offense for the first 46 minutes. And then Butler able to uh, kind of be the, uh, the, the go-to guy down the stretch. Yeah, and that's something he's proven up to this point. And again, it was something I saw a little bit of as it was getting tight. Like, do we really want to, does Boston really think that getting Miami in a tight game is going to work? Not only have they played so well in these situations, but you're right, Jimmy Butler has risen above time and again, not only throughout the playoffs, but just in general, as someone who can can work so well with the Cats. I wouldn't say he's Miami's best player, but I don't think he's like in, in the mode I would think of a Kawhi or a LeBron or something of that mode to do everything down the stretch, but he does everything needed when it's needed the most, and that's the most succinct way I can say that. And with Miami having that poise and confidence, not that Boston doesn't have, but Miami is, is, is literally built for this with, with the way they play and who they're playing around, that's the difference, or that was the difference in this game one, and, and it honestly could very well be a factor throughout the duration of this series. Yeah, and I really do think that Boston is going to need Hayward to come back and, and, and make an impact off the bench at some point in this uh, in this matchup. You know, without Hayward, I think Miami, I would probably pick Miami in six. Uh, I think he, I, I assume he's going to be back at some point to at least give them 15 to 20 minutes, but he could make a big impact just having another another guy that can, that can uh, space the floor and also create something for their offense. So, so that's going to be important. I had one one other note, and uh, you, you said that you were listening to a lot of this, so I don't know if you actually caught uh, this play at the end of regulation, but the Celtics are down one, right, after Jimmy Butler hits this clutch three in the corner to put the heat up. And on the out-of-bounds play, Kemba Walker is, uh, you know, on the, the far side of the floor. He runs towards the ball, and he's being guarded by Derek Jones Jr., and he pushes Jones Jr. into the screen, and Jones Jr. hits the screener, and and uh, the the dunk champion is called for the personal, which is uh, prior to the inbounds pass, so it gives the Celtics a free throw. Uh, it should have been an offensive foul on Walker, but instead the Celtics got a free throw, tied the game, and then they were able, because it was a tie game and they weren't down, they were able to take the last shot to... Uh, you know, either win or take it to overtime. But that was a play where I was just like, wow, if, if Miami loses this because of, uh, of that call, that would be a, a rough way to end it for the officials. You know what? I did hear a little bit. I was on, on the Boston end on, on the end of the game uh, just because I remember uh, the last second shot. That was a total waste of the time left. But anyway, um, I didn't see it. I'll have to check back and, 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 make, and, and look back on that for sure. But, yeah, I heard that the refs were – a little bit involved, a little more to someone's liking to even get it into overtime in the first place. And, I mean, the way you described it, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, uh, and there was, another, there was another call where Kemba just jumped into the body of a defender and, and got free throws, which that always frustrates me when they, when they uh, fall for that, where the offensive player is creating the contact. But, uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I thought the team that, that played better, especially... Uh, in that uh, in that fourth quarter in overtime, ended up winning in in the Heat. But uh, yeah, let's let's move on to the other game, which was the game seven between the Clippers and the Nuggets. And and Corbin, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but 
the Clippers have been eliminated and the Denver Nuggets <laughs> are in the Western Conference Finals. I am so pumped. I'm so pumped. I mean, just let me get out the way. I love Clippers Twitter is an interesting place. I mean, I, as, as you are, I'm a basketball junkie. I actually listened to like four or five different ones today. Clips show, the athletic NBA show, locked on Clippers, just to get their perspective on how they're feeling, a pulse on, on the Clippers fan base. You have some very educated basketball fans that are Clippers fans, great content, all of that. All that being said, having heard everything that I've heard all year, right? Having, and yes, Laker fans have given pot shots and things too. I get it. Having seen all this happen, all the tweets about, you know, just two more months until Kawhi's a champion again, and yada, 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 and this and that, and is the Clippers series to lose? Y'all were all right. Y'all were all right. It was the Clippers series to lose, and they did it. And that's just what happened. And you know what? Again, I don't want to be, and I'm sure with, with you on Garrett, it won't go that way, but so much of the dialogue concerning the Clippers and Nuggets series has been about what the Clippers did wrong. And yes, there was a lot of things there. But the Denver Nuggets really rose above and deserve a ton of credit, not only in adjustments, but also in making the most of their opportunity and really, just first and foremost, their resiliency in fighting back and not caving in in the series that everyone wrote them out on after that after that 3-1 lead or 3-1 deficit. Right. Yeah, you uh, you know, it uh, it takes it takes a lot of things to happen for a, a 3-1 series lead to to be blown and yes, it it, uh, it usually is a combination of factors. One the the team that that got out to the lead struggling a little bit, but then also, you know, it takes a it takes an, a tremendous effort to to uh, to come back from from that sort of a deficit and and yes, you're right. Denver deserves a, a ton of credit, but you know, looking at this, you know, the, the, the Clippers were up fifty to thirty-eight with uh, four thirty-six to go in the second quarter, and I'm thinking, you know, watching the game, I'm thinking, you know what? There, although Doc Rivers hasn't made any um, decisions over like who's getting minutes that I would have liked to have seen, uh, I did see some actual schematic things that were were positive. The, the Clippers were, were being much more aggressive, uh, attacking the Denver's uh, trapping defensive scheme. They were getting splits. They were uh, slipping screens to create offense. They were rejecting screens to, to try to get into the paint and draw help. And, you know, they were playing pretty good basketball. But by halftime, you know, the, the Nuggets had, had crept back into it. They cut it to two at halftime, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so Landry Shamit sprained his ankle uh, in the first half. We've got Zubac has picked up 3,000, has largely been out of this. Uh, the Doc Rivers has refused to play Jermichael Green, uh, you know, enough minutes at the at the five spot where the Clippers can, can play this switching defense. And, you know, you look at Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and, and uh, Lou Williams, all of them were we're kind of struggling a little bit. And I sat there at halftime thinking, I think the Denver Nuggets are going to win this game. Wow. Yeah, it was just around that. Well, I, by the time I started watching, was just the last like three, four minutes. I'd listen a lot and then got home, started watching the last like three, four minutes of half. And I thought the same thing. Like, wow. You know, listening to it, like you said, the Clippers are playing mostly efficiently. They're making smarter decisions. They kind of built up a lead, which means absolutely nothing if the series has shown nothing else but okay right now the poise and the confidence on their side you know here we are but the fact that the Nuggets stayed through in an unsettling way that made it go wow like yeah they might turn the tables I will admit I did not think that the Nuggets were going to run away with it 
game six, like, the Nuggets going to take this. Oh, my goodness. At the time, it was like an eight-point game or something. And I was just like, oh, yeah. And then by the time the third quarter was over, I, I just felt it. And I guess maybe it's, you know, it, it, I felt the same way a couple of years ago watching the Clippers and the Rockets in that series where, yeah, it wasn't a far, like, the game hadn't been blown open just yet. But as a viewer, you know, you watch the games and you get a, a sense of the tent, of the tempo and, and kind of the momentum and everything. You just go, no, this is it. Like, like this, I don't know how it's going to happen, but the, the, the Clippers don't have the pop that they need right now. And sure enough, I mean, it, I mean, it also helped they didn't score for like the first five minutes, first seven, no, first seven or eight minutes of the fourth quarter. But like going into that, it just felt like, yeah, the Nuggets have the momentum and wow, they're moving on. Yeah, uh, you know, the 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 difficult aspect of, of getting into a game seven is you no longer, you know, have full control. You know, if, if you take care of business before seven, uh, typically, um, you know, you, you have plenty of time to figure things out and, and experiment and make adjustments and all that. But a game seven, you know, both teams have, have the other figured out for the most part. Both teams... Uh, you know, especially in this series, both teams have multiple stars that can that can go crazy. And when it's a do-or-die situation, a lot of times it might just come down to which uh, which players step up and which ones don't. And you look at the, the stat lines in this game. Nikola Jokic finished with 16 points, 22 rebounds, 13 assists, 2 steals, and 3 blocks. Jamal Murray had 40 on 15 of 26 from the field, 6 of 13 from downtown. And then you look at the counterparts on the other end, the Clippers' three best offensive players, Kawhi Leonard, 6 of 22, Paul George, 4 of 16, and Lou Williams, 3 of 11. It was it was a shame. Like you said, they couldn't buy a bucket. And it's like as the series, as the game went along, especially in that late third, or you know, all of the fourth quarter, their aggressiveness in that end didn't happen. I don't even think Kawhi scored in the fourth, if I remember correctly. But they weren't driving to the basket at will. It was a lot of threes and a lot of misses, and it was like it was like a switch of turn. And they everything that was was generating good shots for them and was it was getting them in a situation where they were getting some good momentum just went away from them. And and you said it; those numbers don't lie. Lou Williams never had it together all series. Um, he had a couple minutes in the waiting minutes of Game Six where he started to put together a couple baskets. But all all playoffs, if you want. All series, especially, he was just off. But Kawhi, that was, I mean, that was, they said, the worst half he's had basically of his career, you know, on that volume. Um, especially since he was been the Kawhi that we know, you know, one of the best players in the NBA. So that was shocking. And then, you know, Paul George, playoff P, whatever you want to call it, had a, you know, way off P, as they say. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing about a Game 7, especially in this environment where they're playing every other day. There's never multiple days off in between games. You know, fatigue can become a factor, and you talk about with with the Clippers starting to surrender leads in games five and six, they started putting Kawhi more on Jamal Murray, and you know, asking him to defend uh, the Denver Nuggets, one of the Denver Nuggets key offensive guys, and be your initiator and and playmaker and scorer on the other end. It's asking a lot of him, and and perhaps just fatigue got the best of Kawhi in this game. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, people are going to criticize Kawhi, and, and probably rightfully so for this performance. This is the second, in, in, my, in my mind, this is the second Game 7 in his career where he's kind of laid an egg, including that 2015 Western Conference first-round series against the Clippers, where he just didn't really show up. Um, 
So, so certainly, you know, Kawhi has a lot to answer for. Um, you know, Doc Rivers was sitting there in the press conference saying that, you know, it was a matter of the Denver Nuggets being, uh, you know, having more chemistry, being together longer. And frankly, I think that's just, uh, you know, a poor excuse. Doc Rivers, I think, got absolutely outcoached in this series by Mike Malone. He, uh, you know, despite the fact that, yes, Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell are the back-to-back six-mans of the year, neither of them were performing at anywhere close to their usual levels during this series, and at no point did he ever make the decision to say, okay, I'm going to draw them back and go with some lineups that have actually produced for us in the here and now, and and that is just a straight-up failure from Doc Rivers. The sad thing is it's one of a list of men, because you said that, and that's, and that's one big point. Hey, the guys who have helped me out, you know, who have who've shown that maybe I should go to that more. And the sad thing is, what you're going to end up getting is a lot of, well, we didn't have a healthy roster for less than 25 games, or, you know, we were going through injuries and out of shape. And mind you, some, some rightful, right, very, very valid issues concerning, you know, players like Montrez Harrell and stuff outside the bubble that, you know, you can't contextualize the impact that they may have had. But in general, just basic coaching, identifying the strengths and weaknesses of your players. You can say whatever you want. You've coached Montrezl Howell for more than just this year. Montrezl Howell didn't get any better defensively. And when you know, with Nicole Oaks playing like this, I mean, you would have to have been shut off of media entirely and just dead set on your way of, okay, we're going to go with this guy rather than not active or not activate, not use Michael Green more, not even bring Patrick Patterson up for a couple more plays. He could have been better. I, I don't think that Montrezl Howell could have been, I mean, any worse. Actually, you never know. But the point being, these adjustments that were supposed to be made, hey, maybe you said going smaller, going more defensive focus line, and maybe trying to mix up the coverages on Jokic, maybe putting one of our better defend- one of our better defenders in Kawhi Leonard on Jokic more from the beginning just to give him a different look. And, and some of this didn't happen. His insistence on riding with Lou Williams and Montrose Harrell, even when Lou Williams was just definitely cold and Montrose Harrell was just giving up buckets early in the series, came back to bite them late. And then he didn't adjust with that. And and, and it's one of the few things that, you know, looking back, and this is going to be a series I definitely will ch- look back in just to kind of see all the many places where Doc went wrong. Maybe giving, you know, giving too many minutes to Reggie Jackson at weird points. Playing Patrick Beverly. He did not change, Patrick Beverly did not change the way he played defense throughout the entire series. And yet for some reason in game six, Pat, Pat Beverly, with the fourth quarter just starting, Doc Rivers says, you know what, let's put Pat Beverly in with five fouls. And not even two minutes later, Beverly is fouled out of the game. And like moments like that, you can pinpoint a couple in each game in general, much less the ones the Clippers lost, where you just look and say, Doc, what are you doing? I, I don't understand, and I don't just put on Doc. There's an entire coaching staff. At the end of the day, the fault lies at Doc's feet. But the sheer inability to make moves or to be perceptive of situational awareness concerning your team in high-stake moments, it, it, it boggles my mind, man. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the center minutes, you know, uh, to me, their best lineup was Jamichael Green at center with, you know, four perimeter guys. Green played 24 minutes in this game. Clearly not enough. Zubac, yes, he got into foul trouble throughout this, didn't make much of an impact in this game, but part of that is because he only played 14 minutes. Montrez Harrell played 26. <laughs> I mean, Harrell was clearly their worst option at center in this series, and Doc played him the most. I, I will say this. I think that the answer personally would have been a, 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 a Zubac for, for, def, for definite moments. Even 
minutes with that of, of Plumlee for Denver. But I also would have went more to a small ball unit. I also would have went more to Jermichael Green and Patrick Patterson and Spots and Spell. Open up your big man rotation a little bit more. I get not playing Zubac. It was just weird because all season it was it, he wouldn't play Zubac. I was like, why not? Like the guy's been effective. But I don't feel he was as effective in this series against Jokic as, as at least on the offensive end he was giving you nothing. On the defensive end he was doing better than Harold, but that's that's not saying a whole lot. But I would have done something different than let's just forget all that. Let's not go use the two big men we have signed. Let's not play Zubac more than 15 minutes a game, and let's lean even more on Montrez, even as he's a minus 30 for you know each game he's matched up against Jokic. Yeah, I mean, frankly, the the idea of matching Harrell up with with Plumlee, I get it. You know, that's that's a better matchup for Harrell than Jokic. But why not match Zubac with Plumlee? You know, obviously Zubac was struggling a little bit with Jokic. I would rather see. Let's put Jermichael Green at the five and make the you know spread the Nuggets out. Yes, maybe Jokic beats us up inside, but we can score effectively on the other end. And then when Plumlee comes on, that's when you bring in Zubac. To me, you know, I wouldn't have played Harold at all, to be honest. That's how bad he's been in this series and how bad he was in Game 7. The fact that he played 26 minutes, I mean, that to me is close to a fireable offense for Doc Rivers. And uh, I, I also, I've got it. I've got to give, uh, I've got to give Anthony Doyle, who uh, is a contributor at Raptors Republic, a lot of credit for for this tweet. He uh, he said Kawhi got a doc, but what he really needed was a nurse. <laughs> Like, did you see any, you know, no, we're not going down like this. It was like, oh, well, we're down, and 
all right, we'll take some threes while we brick those. Well, you know, it was like they were playing each time they scored. Okay, how much time we have? And then it, it just it just seemed of desperation. All the while they were talking about having control. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a fight in them in the fourth quarter, especially again when they went to that lineup with Jamichael Green at the five. They actually were defending really well for a few minutes there. Beverly uh, was, was causing some issues, and, and that switching gave the Nuggets problems. But, but yeah, at a certain point, you've got to hit some shots. And, and you know, it, it just seemed like the Clippers after, uh, and, and again, with, with nobody going well, you know, Kawhi Leonard's missing, Paul George is missing, Lou Williams is missing. At a certain point when you just can't make a single shot, I mean, it, I think it's just human nature to, to feel a bit deflated and, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think we have to send good vibes out to uh, towards uh, Billy Crystal because uh, man, that guy's probably having a rough night tonight as uh, as the uh, de facto Clippers fan. He's been going through it. I feel so bad. I mean, it sucks that you know you don't have housing rooting for you. You know. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, it's been a while. Like this is horrible. Like wow. And what's what makes this funny? This shows you that. I mean, if you look at Twitter, and this is just something random, but the Clippers were not well-liked at all by players, it does seem. Because you have all over the woodwork, James Ennis went in, Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, you know, um, the Lakers even, uh, you know, you had uh, Jared Dudley, Rudy Gobert. Like, people are coming out the woodwork just talking. Just all types of stuff. Like, like this is not really game-related. But it's hilarious. I don't think I've seen this. Like, it's something else. Yeah. Um, we we haven't talked enough about the Nuggets. And again, we said at the outset, you got to give the Nuggets credit. Any 3-1 comeback, uh, you, you know, it uh, it takes a lot of, of uh, mental fortitude. And, and this Nuggets team has certainly shown that coming back from 3-1 on uh, back-to-back occasions here. And... The improvement defensively is just, it's unbelievable. You know, we, we had a, we were talking on a podcast, I think we recorded after, what was it, game four of that first round series, and, and you, you basically said, you know, you thought it was over. You thought this Nuggets team was done. And wow, way to rub it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Corbin, that's what you said. They were, they were all but finished. Well, and, and to be honest, I was, I was right there with you. I, um, I, uh, I, I, I did say that it, the, the only way they had a chance to come back in the series was if they had some crazy offensive performance in Game 5, which they got that crazy, I think it was a 50-piece from Murray to stay alive. And then, you know, if they were to get Gary Harris back, which he came back in Game 6. But, you know, you, you talk about that team's defense in the first four games of that Utah series, it was some of the worst playoff defense, you know, we had ever seen. And then by the end of that series, with Gary Harris in there, you know, they had at least gotten to maybe, you know, slightly below average, right? And, and then heading into the Clippers series, you're thinking, well, yeah, you know, they've, they've gotten back to about what their peak defensive level is, and, but, you know, slightly below average is not going to be good enough against the Clippers. But they took another leap in this series. And by the end of this series, you know, I would say that they're playing you know, above average to good defense. Yeah. They, it, 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 I don't know how exactly. Um, maybe just, it seems like the Nuggets rise to a whole nother level when they're back against the wall, but you're right. It went from a fast break, 
Motorola, whatever the case may be, in that first round against Utah to a team that down the stretch against even more elite offensive talent in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard in those guys were able to become even more effective. It, it was very weird. You're right. Like, they somehow became competent. And some of that was effort-related. But in particular, Nicole Jokic, remember, he was being ripped in game one, if I remember, of this series by Draymond Green on TNT. And even from that to being someone that wasn't played off the floor, you know, even on switches, which the Clippers advantageously went for, but was also doing the work on the offensive end. And, and you're right. Like, I again, I'm going to need to watch this enough time to see exactly where. But in general, it was amazing to see how the Nuggets turned to a very stout defensive team. And some of that, I think, was just the inclusion of Gary Harris because you cannot understate his impact on this team. Yes, shot-making being a thing, but having someone who defensively, yeah, he's not a stopper, quote-unquote, but someone who will very much hold his own on that end and adds the, the collective defensive acumen of this team. Again, you didn't have that in round one. It cannot be overstated in this round either. Yeah, uh, you know, I... I... I, uh, I'm guessing Jokic saw that video from Draymond Green and, and took it personally because, yes, this is the best defense I have seen Jokic play. And it goes to show you kind of the narrative swings throughout the postseason. You know, I brought up when, again, we were talking about that uh, that Nuggets-Jazz matchup after Utah went up 3-1 about the idea of, you know, me potentially ranking Gobert ahead of Jokic, right, in the in the individual player rankings. I was seriously considering that. But then, you know, you, you watch Jokic now and the defense he's playing, and of course, this is the fourth consecutive playoff series against various different uh, coaches and teams and defenses that he has continued to just be the best offensive big in basketball. And all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, well, well now maybe Nikola Jokic is more like a top five player in the league. I like that coming out. Yeah, I was, I was just talking to my friend about this. I was like, listen, I've for years, you know, said that, you know, Nikola Jokic is the top five or top ten, whatever, um, or I've said top ten player. But I, I was not, you know, you watch the games that are being played, but I can't say I was watching a lot of Nikola Jokic's games to really gain that appreciation. But watching every playoff game and seeing it's like, no, like this guy – you know, he's had moments here and there, whatever the case may be, but this guy is is very, very, very good. Like, on all concepts, yes, he's a great passer. But we've seen right now, he went from someone who I almost associated with Marcus All, and, and not in terms of similarities in their game, but guys who have offensive talent. Well, let's say Marcus All last year, not so much this year. But guys who have offensive talent but just seem reluctant to shoot at times, to someone who was like, you know what, okay, you want to put the ball in the basket? I'll put the ball in the basket. And keep that same passing vision that he's had. Even in this game seven, he had a couple of passes that were just beautiful dimes, just great court awareness. And on the defensive end, holding his own, not an all-world defender, not a great rim protector like a Rudy Gobert, but someone who's not being played that way. Like, yeah, if this if this playoffs run has not shown people that, or if people weren't already aware, you might as well get on board now because he's only further cemented himself then. I do want to say it is a team effort for one, Jamal Murray just exploding into like, an all-star point guard, the way he's been playing in this playoff series, has been amazing. And not just someone who is a high-volume scorer like he was in round one, but someone who is um, situationally advantageous in terms of getting his looks and picking apart the defense and knowing when to make the right read, knowing when to attack offensively, gaining some more nuance to his game. I've seen Jamal Murray add that. I'm sure you have as well, Garrett, over the last couple of series, or at least if he hadn't, or if he already had this, and he's showcasing it more. And that development's also huge because you could have had Gunslinger Jamal Murray throughout, but you also wouldn't have had an efficient 9 of 13 from him in Game 6 and then a 40-burger tonight in Game 7. 
Yeah, Murray was was amazing. Uh, the in, you know he had he had largely struggled in this series, but what I what I love about the two of them on the same team in in Murray and Jokic is that they both help each other. You know, in that Utah series, it was a lot of you know Jamal Murray is is on fire and he is somebody that the Jazz he was somebody that the Jazz just couldn't stop and he ended up setting up Jokic for a lot of those pick and pop threes and partly you know they they had to do that because Jokic didn't have an advantage matchup against uh, Rudy Gobert and in this series you know the Clippers have guys that they could throw at Murray and and defend reasonably well in the likes of George and Leonard uh, and and Beverly and so in this series, it was the opposite, where the Clippers, when, when they would, would, would defend that, uh, that pick and roll with Murray Jokic, traditionally Jokic was just picking them apart on that short roll. And so the Clippers eventually said, we can't allow Jokic to do that. So then they started to, be, to being forced into switching, which in this Game 7 opened up Murray to have that huge 25-point first half. And you're right, a lot of that just strategy and tactical... Um, I guess smarts to create that for him, but I think I mean there was one shot he had that was just insane in terms of the way that he was. I think it was a shot clock running out off uh, picking a, a switch. I think Kawhi switched off a pick and roll action with Murray and Jokic, and Murray was fading to the right side, was unloosed a three, and that popped in, and that was crazy as far as like just a shot that was like a uh, heat. But like you said, some of it the, the creation was one thing, but and, or some of putting. Murray in position to create these shots, but also him getting them in rhythm and not really feeling like he was being uh, kind of forced out, you know? Right, and it is truly like when you've got two big-time scores like those two, you can kind of just press whichever one has the better advantage, and then that will likely free up the other. I think what Denver has shown in this postseason is that their offense, I think, is very versatile and and uh, if your defense has any weak links, which the Clippers don't have a lot of weak links, but uh, they do have a yeah. few, um, you know, if you have any, they can exploit it. And, uh, you know, really, really impressive. And, you know, there, there's not really anybody else in the NBA that makes me jump out of my seat, audibly gasp. I, I even had a few yelps in this game uh, from, from Jokic's <laughs> passes. There was one right at the end where he did the over the over-the-head pass to, to Murray under the hoop. Um, Murray even, you know, some of Jokic's passing I think is, is, uh, is, is, has been contagious. Murray had a behind-the-back pocket pass in this yes. game. Oh, my gosh. I saw, I'm like, I, 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 I saw that. I, I, that was, I don't know, man. So, like you said, the, the, right now they're on a whole nother level, the way they're playing. They're on a whole nother level in terms of, not only confidence, but just a really high basketball IQ, a defensive effort that's that's just Skype scaled up a whole nother level. Shot making. This is this is something else. Seeing right, like the Nuggets are. I mean, we already knew the Nuggets were a good team, but the confidence that you have, which I, I'm a big believer in, that I'm a big believer in momentum. Um, you mentioned the dime that Murray dropped. There's been a few, and this is just in general the team play. 
underdog story. But the Nuggets are an underdog, almost in name only. Like, yes, they may not have as much talent, sheer talent-wise, as you would say the Clippers or the Lakers, if you were to line them all up. But they are not a slouch. They have two, one top five player for sure. One player is moving up the rankings just on his playoff performance alone. And a whole roster of guys who know what to do. And, it, it, I mean, it's manifesting itself in front of people right now. And again, I, I should reiterate with this with this Denver roster, I mean, these are all guys that are 26 years of age or under. You've got Jamal Murray, who's 23, Nikola Jokic, 25, Gary Harris, and Jeremy Grant. You've got Monty Morris, that's 24. You've got Michael Porter Jr., 21. I mean, a huge part of this core is, uh, you know, 26 and under. So what they're doing is absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, was there anything else about this series that you wanted to, to, to talk about before we move on to our Western Conference Finals preview? Um, I think one winner of the series, but, you know, in general, aside from the Nuggets, Sam Presti. Uh, you get a great haul. <laughs> you make the playoffs and you exit, what, one round before the people who made these moves to really contend? Like, you don't lose. You don't lose. You come out with, like, a massive war chest. Check. You all go in the playoffs together, yes. And, yeah, although you have an early exit, the same teams that were contending big time are going right home right now. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I think Sam Preston comes out as a winner on this. <laughs> well, and he was, he was one Lou Dort three from advancing further. Than the... Exactly. How much fun would that have been? Like, it just, it, it's, it's, I think it just goes to show you sometimes. I mean, one, I don't know, man. I'm just so... And that's all I had to say about it. I'm just so excited about all of this. But, yeah, that, that's that's an unlikely winner. You know, Sam Preston, because you said it. They, that team contended, and they got off. And that's, I guess, front office 101. <laughs> yeah, um, so... Let's let's move into the, uh, the the Denver Nuggets versus the Los Angeles Lakers series preview. The Lakers, of course, the one seed in the West, taking on the three seed Nuggets. And uh, the the first thing on my mind, uh, you know, obviously it's probably not going to be talked about much, given that yes, the, the Nuggets are celebrating tonight, um, and uh, you know they've got this they've got this test coming up in a terrific defense in the Los Angeles Lakers, but. You know, they the Nuggets got Gary Harris back at the end of round one. There was talk that Will Barton was on the mend and might return at the end of this series. Obviously, that didn't happen. But if the Nuggets were to get Barton back at some point in the Western Conference Finals, that's another huge boost. And, and that's another thing to, to speak to, to what this Nuggets team has accomplished. They've done this without a starter and arguably one of their top probably four or five players in Will Barton. It goes to what we were just talking about a minute before, collectively the team coming together and filling positions of need that they have by stepping up and ratcheting up the level of play. Because you're right, playing without a key starter who would have been a difference maker in this series that they just won against the Clippers in Will Barton and fighting through and, and, and pushing through because you have you know tremendous performances by a Michael Porter Jr. or Torrey Craig stepping up in, in select minutes and, and doing that. And the fact that they may get him back, that's another boost to a series akin to like how they received a boost from getting Jamal Murray for this series. You mean Gary Harris? Oh, my fault. Gary Harris. My fault. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're recording this late at night, so that's uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's to be expected. <laughs> but uh, um, oh, so, 
So yeah, obviously Barton. That'll be that'll be interesting. I haven't heard. Uh, have you heard any news? Because I did hear some rumors that you know he was on the mend and that he might re-enter the bubble soon. But I haven't uh, heard any updates beyond that. Um, no, I heard just the same. Nothing as far as any progression um, in that area for him. So uh, kind of a wait and see process. But like he's hopeful. But yeah, he apparently has been doing the daily tests, so if he were to get back into the bubble, he would only have to have that four-day quarantine. So uh, I would figure that he's not going to be a part of this series for at least the first couple of games, but you know, they, they do have a couple of days off prior to Game 1, so so maybe Game 3 could be a, a, a potential return for Barton. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. Of course, the the fact that it uh, you know he's been out this long would would have been a surprise if you asked me at the beginning of the playoffs. Um, but uh, the the other big thing, you know, speaking to the fact that in in that Jazz series, it was you know the the Jazz didn't have a match for Jamal Murray, and in the Clippers series, you know they didn't have a matchup for Jokic. It seems like this is going to be another series where maybe Jamal Murray is going to have to be the primary initiator because, um, I don't know about you, but I think Anthony Davis could do a decent Rudy Gobert impersonation in terms of trying to slow down Jokic's uh, post-up game. Uh, completely agree. I think it is going to be more like you said, Rudy Gobert, someone who, in my mind, could have and, and probably should have won or at least received more consideration than he already did even as defensive player of the year. Um, and you're right, having that impact on that end, you know, especially if the Lakers do get smaller, which I think, you know, having already kind of eased Davis into in last run against Houston, they should most definitely try here and, you know, starting out against Denver. Uh, I think that could be a very uh, significant impact. This, you're not going against a Zubac and Harrell in this round. So yeah, you do you do you imagine the Lakers are gonna? I mean, they obviously had great success with it against the Rockets. Do you think they're gonna stick with these small lineups with with Davis and at the five and and kind of uh, toss away those uh, those McGee and Howard minutes again in this series? I certainly hope so. And also, I was just seeing on Twitter about an hour or so ago that in the Lakers, you know, the Lakers, although they totally kind of won um, the matchup against Denver during the season and the one game they lost to Denver, LeBron James didn't play. They were, I think, a minus 20-something in minutes with their bigs, and when they went smaller with the lineup that constitutes their small lineup, they were a plus 30. Not sure how much Vogel's looking at that lineup and everything, but I'm thinking that that is when they play at their best. That's still a big lineup, but it's a versatile one, probably one better suit to match up with the way the Nuggets play, and so that would be the hope. I could see them thinking, okay, we can put out our traditional lineup. I, I could definitely see Lakers going that way, but I would hope they would adjust a lot faster if they were to do that. And I definitely think if they're trying to get off the right foot, they might start going small. Um, Marquise Morris is giving the Lakers really good minutes, so keep him as a big alongside Davis, and they kind of work from there. And if, even if you don't play, even if you play Howard and McGee, some uh, don't play them a lot. You know, you can probably get them in minutes in when Plumlee's in the game for the Nuggets and match up that way. Yeah the the other side of the coin though there is if you're if you're relying on Davis primarily at the center position and as the the matchup. Against Jokic, there's there's obviously foul trouble to to factor into things. You know, Jokic obviously really good at at drawing fouls on on uh, his matchup, and the Lakers need Davis to play heavy minutes in this series. And so, if you're if you're asking Davis to guard Jokic the entire game, that that is a bit of an issue. the The other thing too is you know you talk about that two man game, that Murray Jokic pick and roll. 
Uh, how do you imagine, especially again if the Lakers are going more small, do you imagine they switch that action uh, and and put the likes of, of Davis on Murray? Uh, and my my concern with that is if you do that, then all of a sudden Jokic now has a post-up advantage against whoever uh, has switched on to him. That's going to be interesting, and I'm going to have to think that one through because you're right. And, and Jokic will definitely press that attack. Do you pre-switch? Do you kind of go in and, and with with a bigger lineup or, or try to double on Jokic knowing that you know he'll carve you with his passing? How do you adjust to that is the question. But maybe you, you stunt and, and, and fall back. I'm not really sure. I wouldn't directly switch it, especially given the alternative where you have a, a much smaller player on Jokic in a, in a matchup where, I mean, you saw how easily he was scoring on Paul George. You know, all due respect, the Lakers defenders are not a Paul George. Um, so that would be interesting to see how they kind of counteract that. I'm looking forward to even thinking that through in terms of how they adjust. I would more than likely even put LeBron on for certain minutes or, or guys, you know, LeBron's had success on Jokic in select minutes and, and really kind of not only holding up well in the post, but almost deterring him from even going down there. One, because LeBron gets just a little more leeway, I think, in terms of being more physical down there. But two, his defensive instincts are so great that he truly can disrupt Jokic down the post. And, and it's given him problems in the past when they do match up that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm less concerned about LeBron guarding Jokic than I am about LeBron guarding Murray. You know, that's the thing. So if you put LeBron on Murray as the initial matchup so that you can switch that, um, then I like Murray kind of beating that matchup. You know, LeBron is has obviously had a tremendous defensive season, but dealing with super quick guards at this point in his career is definitely not a strength of his. And again, that's what has made this Murray-Jokic combination so difficult and why, you know, they're both good passers, they're both good scorers, uh, they play the one and five position, so they have, they're guarded typically by, you know, much different types of players, so switching that is, is really difficult. So, yeah, it, uh, it is a question mark. You know, I, I frankly thought the Clippers had better personnel to switch everything um, with, with their small lineups than, than necessarily the Lakers do. And this is this is a this is really the the series where it, it kills the Lakers that Avery Bradley is not there. It really does. He would be just that pesky defender that you know isn't uh, is a little more poised, unlike uh, a Pat Beverly, but someone who could definitely get in his grill. Um, I'm, I'm assuming Caruso will definitely get his minutes in there. Um, KCP and Danny Green, maybe Danny Green a little bit. You want a guy who, if you know, Colin switches has the frame at least, which is why I wanted to say Kuz, even though I know he's coming off the bench, but matching up a few there, because, yeah, he'll get burned by Murray, but just concede that that's going to happen and that Murray's going to score a lot. And I would try to take out Jokic um, by sending a revolving, you know, Marquise Morris getting time, LeBron getting moments there, like you said, either trying to keep LeBron off of Murray or put him on for select minutes is going to be moments where switches will happen. And although LeBron is not in the physical state to stay in front of Murray like that, he's still a darn good defender. I'm not, I'm, it's not ideal, but I'm not. It's not like Jamal, although he has been playing very, very well. But um, with that being said, um, I, I guess for, for, for the Lakers side, at least from the jump, I would try to go small, but in bigger players. Like I said, maybe even give Kuzma a start to have guys who 
have enough size but can still play that small ball action, and then just stress your advantage on the offensive end. Because I still, I mean, between, as, as good as the Nuggets have been, between Davis and LeBron, at least looking at the games so far that have been played, I mean, they've, they've gotten theirs in space. Yeah. Um, I had one more thought just in terms of when the Nuggets have the ball. Um, you know, obviously the, the Lakers, a tremendous defense, and, and they're, they're very disciplined. They, they know when to help, who to help off of. So it's going to be crucial. The fact that the Nuggets won this series against the Clippers with Jeremy Grant, for the most part, not hitting shots uh, is, is, is really interesting because I think he is going to have to hit shots against the Lakers because I think the Lakers will, even more so if they notice a guy is struggling, will leave him and, and really try to clog things up, especially in that two-man game with Murray and Jokic. So it's going to be important for these, these other guys for Denver to, to knock down outside shots, and that's another reason why the potential presence of Barton, another guy, another really good catch-and-shoot guy, could be vital. Oh, yeah, exactly. Someone out there could put more pressure because you're right. The Lakers will totally hang, have at it, you know, do, do what you got to do on that end. Um, and if they're not making shots, then that could be an issue for the Nuggets on their end because that's possession where if the Lakers, especially if they do go, you know, more with the size that they have, they can gobble those rebounds and really control the game, play more at the Lakers' pace. But if you do have guys out there who are shot makers, or even guys like Barton who are shot makers and can, you know, create their own shots um, and, and add some more offensive diversity, diversification there, you know, that can prove to be a little more of a headache for the Lakers, who even though the Lakers are extremely locked in, let's just, I mean, they just went through a, a pretty interesting round themselves with the Rockets, who, although weren't playing, will still have the best offensive player currently, I'd say, in the NBA. Um, and, they, and they locked in and took him out the game, so I don't want to give the Lakers' defense, you know, any slack. They, they, they've done everything so far to convince that they, that they got it, but there's some severe, um, just weaknesses you can tell from the personnel that going to be it's going to be vital and and yeah like I I really like how Jeremy Grant's shot looks he just wasn't getting any to go but he he shot the lights out in that jazz series Uh, Michael Porter Jr. his improved defensive play has been has been huge he's he's actually been trusted now by my by Mike Malone and and he obviously brings some really good floor spacing Monte Morris a, a capable shooter as well so uh you know this this Nuggets offense is is really really difficult to stop and it's going to be a fascinating battle between you know one of the better offenses in the uh, NBA playoffs versus uh, the the best defense of the NBA playoffs in the Lakers but uh, you know uh, speaking and you know talking about the other end of the floor when the Lakers have the basketball one thing you know that's been really impressive and, and one of the main reasons why the Nuggets have improved so much defensively over these uh, last uh, couple of rounds is their interior defense you know in this game seven against the Clippers Kawhi Leonard took zero free throws Paul George took one free throw they have really done a, a much better job with their size. You know, they've got the likes of Millsap and Grant and Porter Jr. 
they've, they've always got one or two of those guys out there plus a center. So they've always got a lot of size on the floor, and they've done a much better job of, uh, you know, kind of blocking off the rim, you know, preventing teams from, from living at the line. And that's something that the Lakers rely so heavily on. So, so that improved interior defense for the Nuggets, that's certainly going to be put to the test in this matchup. I was going to say, it's something that we'll definitely have to keep it up for certain. Um, and you'll, you'll see a lot more of, hey, if, if the Clippers are playing into their hands a little bit, or if this is the real deal in terms of how the Nuggets are playing moving forward defensively. Because you're right, with LeBron James at the helm, you know, uh, he's uh, at least it's less characteristic for him to start receding from going to the basket. Anthony Davis will get his points in the basket. He'll start for the mid-range a lot, but the Lakers will be forcing a lot of action to the rim. And unlike the Clippers in this game, they won't stop doing that later in the game. They, they will continue to attack relentlessly. So the pressure will be on the Nuggets to continue to keep their defense up. And if this is how they play now, that's great. And they, and they will have a really good chance of, of really kind of staying in front of the Lakers and making it challenging for them. If not, then, you know, they'll be getting into foul trouble fairly quickly. But, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure on that to see if that newfound defensive acumen, particularly in the paint area, is legit. Well, and the other thing that's fascinating about this matchup, too, is Denver, you know, of course, likes to blitz those, uh, you know, all pick-and-roll actions for the most part. And doing that against LeBron James is uh, is a, a scary proposition because, yes, he's one of the greatest passers in the history of the sport. But at the same time, there is an element of, you know, oh, if you look at the Nuggets roster, yes, they've got Millsap, they've got Grant, uh, they've got some guys that they can throw at LeBron, but, you know, you don't really like any of them in a one-on-one matchup. And, of course, that LeBron-Davis pick-and-roll, if LeBron has got a head of steam and Davis is the lob threat, that's tough to stop. But if the Nuggets, you know, continue to blitz those actions, they can kind of take that lob play. They, they can basically take that lob play away. And then it comes down to LeBron is going to find open shooters, and can those guys actually hit those shots? It's going to come down to that for sure. Although I will say... As far as the LeBron's defenders, I'm not losing sleep on any one of those guys on LeBron. I think the pressure's on him. Um, I think maybe of anyone that LeBron's had, this is probably the weaker defense that he's going to have on him, aside from Portland with Gary Trent Jr. and um, Carmelo on them. And even I thought Carmelo and Gary Trent, for all, the, all that it was good for, did a lot to stop him. I, I think LeBron will pretty easily get his in this round. I, I think between Millsap being a little too slow, um, Gary Harris and others being just a little too small, and, and, and Porter Jr. not only just being kind of inept defensively, but also just totally outmatched. I don't see either putting up a, a really good challenge to LeBron. But with that being said, whether or not LeBron scores 50 a game or not, a lot of pressure will be on the Lakers shooters to cash in their open looks and make um, Denver pay. And that will go down to, you know, Danny Green, to Alex Caruso. Marquise Morris is a big, was hot, you know, last round. Rajon Rondo was hot last round. They're going to be counting on to continue that shooting. LeBron himself, AD when, you know, um, when applicable. <laughs> you know, these guys are going to have to make their outside jump jumpers, not only to keep space out, but also to, you know, uh, relieve some pressure from LeBron. He's going to have it in general, and, you know, being able to work in a campaign is nothing new for LeBron. He'll be able to do that, but if you got guys like Danny Green, who've just been awful in the bubble, you know, starting to warm up a little bit better against Houston toward the latter games, continue to make some shots, that will open up a whole world of opportunities for the Lakers to really get going. And once those shots are going in, then LeBron can get an easier, then that pick-and-roll game might start.
start to work itself again because you're right, Denver does have some elements defensively that can, you know, not completely stop it, but, but definitely stifle it at times. And, and then the, the machine can continue humming. That is the Lakers' offense when engaged. But it'll, it'll basically seem, like you said, how it'll be, how the Lakers are going to run this. Because looking through um, their last wins over the Nuggets, uh, Dwight Howard had big games in both of them. Well, a, a huge game in, in the first one, not so much in the other one, but he got, he got minutes. So did JaVale McGee. Um, although they both were held under 20, they, they still got some time. So we'll have to see if, you know, Coach Vogel is going to make adjustments based on what he did against Houston or if he's going to look at it against, you know, the way that he's played Denver in the past because Denver right now, they're, they're fine too. They may be the same roster on paper, but the play styles and where they're going as far as Denver is concerned is totally different. Corbin, I think we both actually missed the, uh, you know, when, when we said that this isn't going to be, they don't have, the Nuggets don't have a great matchup against LeBron. We both we both forgot that, you know, maybe they've got the greatest matchup of all, and that is, and, and we saw it in this series against the Clippers, uh, you know, maybe Mason Plumley is the elite wing stopper. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, it's possibly, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, they threw him on Kawhi for a few possessions, and I'm like, all right, that's that's something. Um, but uh, no, I I um I I don't think you're giving Millsap enough credit. Uh, I know he's he's not quite as as good of a defender and not quite as athletic and quick as he was, but neither is LeBron. You know, I think LeBron struggles now more with guys that can match his strength and and can read his moves and are just solid, savvy defenders. And I think Millsap is that. So, frankly, I like Millsap more than anybody that Houston threw at him in the last round. I, I would say I agree with you, but looking again at the last two games, Millsap played both. So did LeBron. LeBron scored 29-1, 32 in another. Um, I, I, I don't see it. I mean, it's possible. You're right. Like, some guys do give him problems at this stage of his career, but, like, LeBron is also really playing well right now. I can't even I have to watch those games again, but like it didn't seem like he was struggling. Let's just say he scored those points fairly efficiently. So, you know, maybe Millsap was doing all that he could and it just wasn't happening. I, I, I can't speak enough to it. I'm just looking at I I remember one watching one of the games specifically and no, I, I definitely saw LeBron getting what he wanted. I don't remember the other one, but the numbers are showing up. I mean, hey, it, it's possible. I, I just I don't see it. I, I think Millsap is a great defender. Well, yeah, I I am in no way suggesting that Millsap is going to really like shut down LeBron. Um, no, nobody shuts down LeBron. The guy is going to put up numbers, and he's going to do it efficiently. He's done it throughout, uh, you know, for the last ten years. No matter who has defended him, even Andre Iguodala, uh, you know, they they uh, raved about his defense in in the finals appearances against LeBron. But frankly, LeBron still put up incredible numbers against him. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, um, I, I just think that the, with the way Denver plays, with the fact that they trap, uh, you know, they'll try to get the ball out of LeBron's hands, and the fact that they have size, they're going to try and build a wall around the rim. I don't think it's just going to be free sledding for LeBron like it was for, uh, you know, some of that Houston series um, after the Rockets seemed to give up, after they lost, or if they, after they went down 2-1. But uh, but no, LeBron is LeBron is going to do well. It's just a matter of for Denver is can they slow the Lakers down enough that their offense can win them the series? 
I mean, I, I don't think so. Um, I, it's, it's. I mean, let me let me ask you let let me ask you this. So, if this series really does come down to the Nuggets can't stop AD and LeBron, so they send a bunch of help, and same on the other end, the Lakers can't stop Jokic and Murray, so they send a lot of help. What set of uh, role players do you trust more to hit those shots and to make plays? Do you trust the Rondo, Caruso, Green, KCP, Markeith Morris group? Or do you trust the um, Gary Harris, Paul Millsap, Jeremy Grant, Monty Morris, and Michael Porter Jr. group? So that's interesting because ideally, I mean, neither, I mean they both have pros and cons to, to both sides. Um, I, as weird as it is to say, because the Nuggets, here's the thing. The Nuggets played so well in this series, I almost want to go to them, even if I think it's going to be more recency biased because I just watched them because the Lakers role players totally handled their business and dispatched Houston way earlier. So I don't know if I should slight them, even though historically speaking, I mean, Rondo, Morris, I, I, I don't know. If I'm going to put each one down by like, because what I'm really looking at at this point is either who was more hot recently or who has a better playoff, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, resume over board that you can say, okay, I look at this side more than this. You know what I mean? Um, ideally, I would take Michael Porter Jr. out of any of them as the best shooter. But in general, I mean, the Lakers looked in tune. They looked, I mean, mind you, this that series was over, and it feels like two weeks ago, that I don't remember. Like, they just took care of business. They made their shots. So do I expect that to continue on? I can no longer suppose that they would do that any more than I would suppose that the Nuggets can keep on this hot shooting on their end either. So it's weird. I think for me, it's, it's, I'm not even really looking at the role players. I'm almost doing the exact same thing, and I kind of feel bad about doing it, as I did with Clippers versus Nuggets, where I'm looking at the better players and thinking that they make the difference because the role players can go and go back and forth. I think I'm a big believer in, in, in playoff Rondo. Um, even though, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of jokes and a lot of stuff on that regard, like, the dude has definitely been a game changer since he's been playing in the playoffs this year. Like, that's just been a simple fact aside from that game one dud, you know, in his first game back. So, aside from him, Alex Caruso has been making his shots um, more so, but he was part of the same struggle of a Lakers team that wasn't able to buy a bucket, you know, as the season wound down. So, I- I'm going to give an intricate non-answer on that one. I'm talking myself in, I'm talking myself out. I want to say the Nuggets, but I'm trying to figure out why, aside from the way they played so far. But if that's the case, then I should be saying the Lakers because they were hot the second round and they got done earlier. So, you know what I mean? Like, I I mean, obviously, I think you're leaning more Nuggets, but what is your thought process in that? Yeah, I mean, I... um... I just trust the Nuggets guys more as shooters, you know, and I'm talking over their careers. You you factor in Gary Harris, yes, he struggled shooting this year mightily, but throughout his career, he's been a decent three-point shooter. Um, you know, you talk about Michael Porter Jr., that guy can really shoot the basketball. Jeremy Grant shot the ball well from three all year long. Monte Morris, I think for uh, the last couple of years, has been close to a 40% three-point shooter. I think those guys have a better track record of knocking down catch-and-shoot shots. But, you know, as you said, there there are these other intangibles that the likes of Rondo and Caruso and, and Green and KCP, they, they um, you know, if they're hitting shots, you know, their all-around play might, uh, might win out. Yeah, it, it, I, it, you know, that's funny. Maybe they are the two, like the shooters, and like you said, whether 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, obviously Davis feasted on the Rockets because they put zero size on him. Uh, that's going to change in this series. So Davis is not just going to be able to turn and shoot over the top. And he seemed very comfortable doing that in the last round. But, you know, I think it's very obvious that I trust LeBron more than anyone in this series. But, frankly, I trust Jokic more than I trust Davis in this series. Uh, you know, it's funny. I completely agree with you. I mean, Jokic has just played so well. He's shown so much poise. I mean, he got through the pressure cooker of the Clippers. I mean, Anthony Davis struggled against that in the regular season, much less the spray shirt the Clippers showed, you know, in the last couple rounds. Even while having Harold on them, there were double teams. He was being hacked, and he was still just methodically picking apart the defense. Like, I definitely, I definitely do say, like, LeBron is head and shoulders for me above anyone else on this series, but after that, Nicole Jokic is not right there, but he's literally the next person. And, you know, you've got to give some credit to Murray, the fact that you know, he had such an amazing first-round series, and then it looked like, oh, maybe the Clippers kind of have his number. But the fact that he got through that and then had this brilliant Game 7, um, the guy has been through the playoff crucible, and he has passed, in in my opinion, at this point. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's flying colors. Like, I've heard, I think there's no other player aside from maybe Jamal Murray. And honestly, I maybe crazily had, you know, me with high-usage high shooting point combo guards i had a higher view of, of jamal murray i think in terms of what i thought he was i guess nicole Jokic was a top 10 15 player in general just because of basketball fan i accept that but i was highly high on murray that even though he has performed so much better being able to see Jokic in the variety of environments first you go against rudy gobert then you go against the clippers and still just be as monstrous and dominant as he is yeah he's made major inroads uh for me yeah i mean the fact that he's uh he's gone through he's you know, they, the Nuggets have been tested against really good coaches and the likes of, of Greg Popovich and Doc Rivers. You know, Jokic has been tested against uh, the Defensive Player of the Year and Rudy Gobert. He's been tested against smaller teams like the Clippers. Uh, he, you know, there, there really is, uh, you know, uh, every, every single possible uh, variable has been thrown at Jokic and, and he has been incredible. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing to say that I'm actually like thinking about it. I I mean, when it when it's all said and done, I'm going to take LeBron and AD over Jokic and Murray any day of the week, but the fact that I'm even like slightly considering it is a testament to how good these Denver guys have been. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they've performed, they've shown out and all credit goes to them. We can't say it enough. You said that at the onset of this, I said it as well. All credit goes to Denver for not showing, not only showing the mental fortitude and resiliency needed to overcome adversity twice. And yes, you need to get yourself in those holes both times. But you fought over there, you fought back, and you climbed the hurdle. But also, you have performed above expectations and continued those performances as a team. And and that right there, I mean, that again, this is even more like you said, the way that they've played, plus the youth of this roster, they're going to be a problem for years to come, whether or not. This is the end for them in the in the Western Conference Finals. Well, and you know, speaking to the star matchup, you know, if if you went into that series with the Clippers and said, "Yeah, I'll take Jokic Murray over Kawhi Leonard and Paul George," everyone would have laughed you out the building. Yeah. Um, and oh, and and we just watched a series where Nikola Jokic was the best player in the series, and Jamal Murray was better than Paul George. Yeah. Um. 
So again, not saying not saying they're going to outplay the Lakers. I wouldn't predict it, but uh, you know, this has been a crazy postseason so far. <laughs> <laughs> it has. It, like I think uh, a couple people already said, bubble basketball, man, it's something, it's something different. Yeah. So. Um, should we do should we do predictions? Do you want to do predictions? Uh, <laughs> you know what? I thought you were going to throw it back in my face two days from now. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? Let's do it. I like I like being able to kind of measure what I'm thinking, where you're at, and we can kind of discuss how close we were, whatever the case may be. Let's do it. All right. Well, but I'm going to let you go first. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Lakers in six. Lakers in six. I think the Nuggets are, are too good to dispatch. I don't, I don't see a sweep happening, um, although I'm starting to see some of that on Twitter. That's a little uh, premature for me. Um, I don't see the Nuggets, although I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I just think LeBron's a, a little bit of a different tier experience-wise and player-wise than a Kawhi Leonard or a Paul George or anyone the Nuggets have ran into so far. Um, a lot of it will go down to the Lakers role players playing as they did last round and making shots. But I trust the LeBron James-led team at the end of the day, and I thought the only team that could stand in their way were the Clippers, and they're already gone. So, Lakers in six. I'm going to agree with you and go Lakers in six as well. Um, the uh, you know, But to be honest, I'm closer to Lakers in seven than I am to Lakers in five. I can get with that. Yeah. Um, you know, the... I think the big different, the big differentiator between the Lakers stars and the Clippers stars is the Clippers stars are heavily dependent on the outside shots falling, and the Lakers stars are not. The Lakers, you know, LeBron James and Anthony Davis are going to score 20, 25 points each by, you know, getting out in transition, attacking the basket, getting putbacks, um, drives. They're, they're going to... Uh, you know, they, they transcend whether their jump shot is falling, essentially. Um, now, I think Denver can can shut that down to a certain extent by sending extra help and forcing the other Lakers players to hit shots. And, and that's why I do think Denver can win a couple of games. I do think that, um, you know, the, the I don't trust the Lakers shooters enough to suggest that they're not going to have an off night or two in this series. And, and Jokic and Murray are good enough that um, if the Lakers have a you know, a seven for 30 night from three that the Nuggets, I think, can can very easily win that game. Um, but the fact that LeBron and AD are going to, you know, they're, neither of them are going to have a, a close to a night that Kawhi Leonard or Paul George just had. And the fact that um, I trust Frank Vogel to put out defensive lineups that are gonna, that's going to get production. They're not going to, you know, he's not going to throw out the traditional centers if they're getting killed he's going to take them out if need be and frankly yeah it's again speaking to all the craziness in this bubble the fact that i'm i trust frank vogel more than i trust doc rivers at this point is is another testament to just how insane things have been uh since uh you know this all started yeah i mean put some respect on frank's name that's all i gotta say no <laughs> while while doc you know is definitely the, the more uh i guess established coach more more of uh a pedigree to him. Frank Vogel has quietly made all the right moves, minor hiccups here and there for the Lakers, knows what to do, and you have a team that is well-coached, and then Vogel has, has shown that throughout the year, making the right move, going downsizing, you know, to match up with Houston, like you said, I'm sure he'll make the right adjustments to match with Denver, and in general, Vogel has done, you know, he's, he's not known as a thought of the coach of the year or anything like that, but he's been a very, very, and as, as he is, a very good coach. 
Well, now that we've picked the the Lakers, obviously the Nuggets are going to be in the NBA Finals, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, no, the Corbin, this was uh, this is a heck of a lot of fun. It was it was good to uh, dive deep on some some NBA topics again, and uh, thank you again for for your time as always. And yeah, we'll we'll be doing this again soon. And yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to schedule a. Uh, uh, a dual league pass radio here soon. Yes, I'm so excited. Hey, as always, Garrett, it's a pleasure every time coming on with you, man. So thank you. That's all. I just feel like thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day.